thank you for listening to this Calvary Aurora Bible study with Pastor Ed Taylor. We pray as you study through God's Word that you're blessed by God's abounding grace. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. This will be the last study in this sub-series on prayer that we've been doing. We have been studying verse by verse through the Gospel of John. We finished chapter 17 after a few studies. We went on to Matthew chapter 6 uh, as we looked at the model prayer. And now I want to give a brief walk through the prayer in the garden in Gethsemane by Jesus. And it's recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But we're going to use Matthew for our time together. It's very simple and it will be an overview for us but we want to learn a few things about prayer from this powerful prayer of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane but before we even get to the prayer I want to point out to you that we're not going to just look at the few verses of the prayer but we're going to go a little bit before and a little bit after we're going to look at a day in the life of the disciples and Jesus the day that he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane that evening And the reason why I want to include a few things is because I want you to see that this prayer of Jesus is surrounded by everyday life. His prayer is surrounded by the mundane things in life, eating. We all eat every day. But it's also displayed in the dynamic of of Jesus speaking a word of wisdom to them and encouraging them. But it's it's also in the middle of regular life. It's in the middle of daily life. It's in the middle of just, that's what prayer is. Uh, We might misunderstand Jesus when he was teaching us in Matthew that we should always pray privately in a prayer closet. But no, the Bible teaches us that we should be always praying, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That we should pray without ceasing. Now that's not an instruction that every single word of our life should be a prayer. But the idea is that we should always be praying. That should just be part of our life. And not only that, but in Philippians chapter 4, we're instructed to be anxious for nothing But in all things, with prayer and supplication, make your requests be made known to God. So prayer should be our lives. I've heard it described as like breathing. We should be breathing in and out of our prayer lives. Praying for this on the way to work and praying for this at lunch and praying for this when it just comes to mind, a little silent prayer in our cubicle. But really praying because Jesus, when he comes into the garden, he's praying in the middle of everyday life. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's not every day in the life that 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 is Jesus is going to face the cross. So he's got some crisis here. I mean, it's it's not like every day that he's going to face the cross, but it is every day that he ate together, he hang out with the disciples, and today we see him praying in the shadow of the cross. It's just up ahead. Not only is it just up ahead, but the disciples, don't forget, we looked at this in depth, almost repeated in every study in John 17. The disciples are about to experience the absolute worst day of their lives up to this point. There hasn't been a worse day emotionally, physically, spiritually in the life of the disciples than it was when Jesus was taken away, beaten, and crucified. Because exactly what Jesus predicts happened. They fled and they ran away from him. And they left their friend in his deepest need. Not only that, they lost their friend. And they're grieving. They were taught that he was going to rise again, but they didn't really understand it. Even to the point after he did rise again, it took a little bit for them to grasp. He's alive. 
And he's preparing them and praying for them as we saw. So notice with me, Matthew 26. Let's pick up in verse 17 where it says, Now on the first day of the feast of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand, and I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So here's a normal meal that they would celebrate, the Passover. A celebration would be once a year. They would celebrate God's deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt, from bondage to freedom, from slavery to the will of God in the promised land, and they would commemorate it. So they needed to purchase and prepare for it. They needed to get some bitter herbs, some wine, some unleavened bread, the lamb, and then find a place in crowded Jerusalem to meet and to eat. Now, from the other Gospels, we learned that there was a particular person they were to look to that was carrying a water jug, which would be very unusual because it was normally the women that would be carrying the water jug. For a man to carry a water jug, he would stand out. So evidently, Jesus had things prepared for them. All they needed to do was walk in what he prepared. And he already considered this man, already pre-set it up for them, and all they needed to do was find him. Now, I thought that was interesting because that is the way our lives are. God goes before us and we walk in what he's prepared for us. We are able to be led by his spirit and we'll go where he wants us to go. We'll do what he wants us to do. But here, this, his, here Jesus has a friend, has somebody that he knows and all you guys need to do is find him and he'll set everything up for you. And we don't know his name. We don't know anything about him except that he was a worker, a servant. He's carrying a water jug. But I thought, man, how grateful I am for all the unnamed and unseen men and women that serve the Lord in the body of Christ, especially in our own church. Just so much going on, so much that God is doing through your life. And we don't know, we don't hear it, we don't see it posted on the internet, we don't get, you know, letters about it. It's just you and the Lord, but the ministry just flows so well. And God, he appreciates, I believe, your faithful service. Even so, it might be behind the scenes. So many of us get to benefit from your behind-the-scenes ministry. So thank you for your faithfulness to the Lord. Now, notice verse 20. Now, when evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He who has dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. And the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said to him, You have said it. Luke tells us that about this time the devil entered into Judas. And here he is as a betrayer. The focus often on Judas is that he betrayed Jesus. He gets the singular focus. And he did betray Jesus. And it was a great betrayal. Someone that Jesus walked with and taught and ate and hung out with and laughed. He's the one that betrayed. And that's what makes betrayal so painful. First of all, how many of you, how many of you here today, maybe you guys on the radio or on the internet, you have to do it, but you just respond to me. How many of you have ever been betrayed? Yes or no? Just say it. Say it out loud. Yes, 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 yes. How many of you have been, we, we may not call it betrayed. We may call it how many of you have been stabbed in the back? And you're like, oh man. 
so painful. And I would suggest to you that the deeper the pain reflects the deeper relationship of love that you had with them. Because a stranger can't really betray you. But someone that you trusted, someone that you loved, someone that you uh, considered a good friend, the pain of betrayal in a family, very painful, very painful. Even earlier in the earlier service, I had one of the folks come up to me after the service and speak to me about betrayal in her family that happened just yesterday. Just so painful, so hard. But there's another type of betrayal that Judas is involved here that goes another level. It's one thing to be stabbed in the back, but on occasion, I'm sure some of you could describe your life that you weren't stabbed in the back. You were actually stabbed in the front while the person was hugging you and kissing you on the cheek. That's what Jesus, Judas does later. He comes to him in the garden, says, hey, the guy I kiss on the cheek, the guy I say, oh, rabbi, I love you. That's the one. And he's stabbed in the front. We had a pastor here not too long ago, uh, Pastor Bob Claycamp. He shared with us, he's our missionary in Exeter. He shared something, I think it was at the pastor's breakfast that he shared. And it was very powerful. And I just want to share it with you in brief, in summary, uh, that he shared. Because if you, so many of us can raise our, yes, I've been betrayed. It's so, so difficult. The, the ongoing issues of betrayal continue. The lack of trust, not wanting to get close anymore, anger, bitterness. All that stuff comes from a betrayal. And especially those that are so close to you. And the betrayal doesn't end. It continues on. They take it with them. Hey, listen, listen. This is what he said. He says, sometimes we have those knives in our backs. And we kind of keep them in our back as a trophy of what we've given up for the Lord. And he says, you need to learn how to take the knife out of your back, let the wound heal, place it at the cross, and walk away. I thought that was just such a sweet way. We don't want knives to be trophies. We want the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to be the trophy. We want his love and agape to be supreme in our lives. We don't want to keep bragging about the knives in our backs or in our front. We want to leave them at the cross. Jesus Christ died for them, and we want to get back to business. We want to get back to business. I was actually meditating on that this week as well, just thinking about betrayal. And I thought of this. I said, man, the best thing to do after you're betrayed is rise again, because that's what Jesus did. He was betrayed, crucified, buried, and then he rose again. And because he rose again, you and I are saved today. And how much ministry can flow through your life? And how much love can be shared? How much of an example of forgiveness that can come from you and me that we respond to these things in love, in charity, in mercy, and in grace? Here he is at the table eating such an important meal and the betrayer's there. We think of the betrayal singular to Jesus, and it's true. But have you ever considered that Judas betrayed the other disciples too? His friends. Like they were all doing ministry together. They were all doing, they were all enjoying life together. And there he is. And sometimes it's just a painful way to live through life. Notice in verse 26, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the institution of what we know as communion. It started at the Passover meal. It started with that right in the shadow of the cross. You're going to remember my broken body and my blood forever. 
forever as we did earlier. Verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So they went from Jerusalem down into the Mount of Olives. They would go down through a valley. And it says, Jesus came to them, and, or Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, and he, he quotes Zechariah chapter 13, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And you've got to love Peter here in verse 33. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. What a sweet heart he has. Sincere and genuine, I believe. I don't believe he's messing around here because we see the evidence of it later. I mean, he's serious. I'm not going to stumble. I'm with you, Jesus. I've set my whole life towards you. I'm confident. You know, he was a little more self-confident. And, and I, we're not told how he did this, but I, I can imagine how it might have been where he's standing there with Jesus and the rest of the disciples and he might say like this, all of them might stumble, but not me, Jesus. I'm not like them. I'm not like the betrayer. I'm not a betrayer. And what a contrast. The loyalty, the commitment, the, the, the I will die with you and for you, Jesus, in Peter, upon the backdrop of, I'm going to sell you out for a couple dollars. That's what my relationship with you, I value it, just for a few pieces of silver. It's a very dramatic scene. Very powerful. The music's going to change. If it was a movie, it's going to change to capture the essence of the emotion that's going on here. I think it was the way, the way that I was raised, for sure, that my dad was one of those guys that was reliable, he was dependable, he was committed, and he was loyal. And I picked that up from my dad. And God only accentuated that when he captured my heart and I was born again. Those good things that were in me, loyalty, integrity, those things that were good, that were still there, God, he built them up. And so that's, I value that in my relationships. I value that of what I bring to the relationship, and I value that when it comes back. Peter's the kind of guy you would want to serve with. Peter's the kind of guy you'd want to go to war with. Peter's the kind of guy you would want to watch your back while you had to do something difficult. Peter's the kind of guy that you would want, I mean, because later on, what does Peter do in the garden? He takes out his sword. He wasn't just talking, man. He took out his sword, and, and there, he's going to take care of all the Roman guard, and all, he's going to take care of him, and he swipes the sword and misses the head and cuts the ear. Now, if you think about it, it's just hard to imagine how to do that swords are heavy and if you just take a swipe maybe the guy went down like this and he didn't go down and just whoom, cut the ear off now that's a dramatic scene because here's peter and in his integrity taking things into his own hands thinking he's doing the right thing doing it the wrong way and his ear like you know for an ear to get cut off you're gonna have blood just whoom, out your ear and then an ear is gonna fall on the ground and be moving around and Peter's going to go, I'll do it, I'll do it. And he's like, put your sword away, man. I'm not here to cut ears off. I'm here to heal. I'm here. To... And so what does Jesus do? He, I mean, that must have been something else. He picks up the ear, no gloves, nothing. Picks up the ear and just, and it's all there. What a testimony that dude had. Hey, what's the scar? You won't believe it, man. My ear was on the ground. 
Because it's not on Instagram or anything. He can't pull out his phone and show him, like, my ear was on the ground. And, and let me show you, because we made an ear out of, you know, out of wax. And, and, and I, I don't know, maybe that, that, that healing from Jesus. See, Peter wanted to take him out. Jesus wanted to heal. And it could be, you know, a guy's not going to get saved by taking out the sword and cutting his head off. But a guy is going to get saved when you bring healing into their lives. It's just such a beautiful picture. So Peter is a man of intent. We want to follow Peter. I know he said some things. I know he put his foot in his mouth. But which one of us haven't done that? Like you want to build up that part of your life where you're committed to the Lord, where you're committed to his word, where you're committed to his calling, and you're committed to his ministry, where the things of this world don't have a hold on you, even though it's constantly knocking, constantly wanting to take you out. Even though Peter gets a bad rap, that's a dude I, want to want, I would have wanted to serve with. I would have wanted to go to battle with him. I would have wanted to, to hang out. And, and yeah, we would have made mistakes together. But this brother, he means what he's talking about. Even to the point where he's telling Jesus, I don't care what the Bible says, I'm with you. Which he should have done both. He should have said, I care what the Bible says. But Lord, I don't want to deny you. And Jesus gets real personal, notice. In verse 34, he says, Jesus answers and he says, Assuredly, I say to you that this night, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter said, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. So not only was he such a loyal man of integrity, he was also full of himself. And he was a leader. Because he, he must have exuded such confidence among the disciples that they all agreed with him. Word with Peter, man. We love you, Jesus. There's no way we could ever foresee us doing such a horrible thing and abandoning you on your most difficult night. And yet Jesus said it would be so. Then, Jesus. Now the ear situation happens after. So after this discussion with Peter directly, Jesus comes with them to a place called Gethsemane. If you like to write in your Bible, circle the word Gethsemane and write next to it, Olive press. Olive press. If you go with us to Israel, we will go to a place called the Nazareth Village as part of our tour. And they will go and take you into a real life uh, example of what it was like in the first century. And one of the places they'll show us is an olive press where they would take the olives, they would put them on this large stone table and, a, and roll with, a, with the help of a donkey. They would roll a large stone around them to squeeze as much oil out of the olive that they can and they would do it once and they would do it twice and that's even today you can buy olive oil by which press it came from Uh, i forget which order it is but one of the presses is more pure than the others and not only that that nothing so that nothing was wasted they would also put the pits on there and in the sound of a pit being crushed under the weight of the stone he comes in to gethsemane the olive press We'll also visit Gethsemane. It's a big church that's so crowded, and there's some older olive trees that are there, and they're fenced off. And they're, they're really interesting to see. They're 1,000, 1,500 years old. They weren't there at the time of Christ, but they're very old. And you'll be able to see them, but that's not the entirety of the place. Most tours just do that big t- place by the church where it's crowded and loud, and, and you just walk through. After you walk through that and see whatever you want to see, we're going to take you across the street to a private garden. It's locked. We have to get somebody to open it up for us. We prepare it ahead of time. We rent it, and we're in there with just a few other groups, and we'll do a little Bible study there. 
and we'll do some worship in there. And one of the sweetest spots on the tour is we'll then release you into this private garden and you'll have some alone time with the Lord. Very quiet. It's so different from across the street. And I'll point that out to everyone while we're there. So different. So loud. The buses are honking. It's so crowded. You got to watch all your stuff so you don't get pickpocketed. I mean, it's just like the life of Jesus. Jesus lived in real life. Like, there was crowded streets. And there were people pressing in on him. And everybody doing business. And they don't care about God. It's very similar. And he will take you into that quiet garden with large walls. And although you can still hear some of the stuff, the noise level goes so down. And most everyone that goes with us say that is one of the highlights. And it's nothing, it's nothing but a private garden. <laughs> with a bunch of trees in it. But you get that personal time where you can share your heart with the Lord right in the area there of the Mount of Olives in Gethsemane. Jesus comes into a private place. We know that he visited here often. This was a normal thing for him. And he tells the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. So he leaves eight of the disciples by the gate, and then he takes, verse 37, Peter and the sons of Zebedee, which are Peter, James, and John, And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Verse 38, he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. So his first prayer, he tells the the three with them, Would you stay here and watch? Which is another way of saying, pray. Watch and stay here and pray. I'm going to go pray. I want you to stay here and pray. Watch and pray. And notice that his emotions are inflamed here in Gethsemane. Jesus becomes, according to the word in verse 37, sorrowful and deeply distressed. And then from his own lips, talking to the Father, he says, I'm exceedingly sorrowful. If you're looking for the picture of a real man, if you're looking to identify as a real man and what the model of a real man is, Jesus Christ is the most perfect example. In all that he did, both strong and meek, both confident and also emotional. It's very different than the message that's going through in our culture today, trying to mix up genders and trying to mix up identities and and the kids today don't even know their identity. They don't know where they come from unless their parents teach them. And now kids are being taught, just choose whatever identity you want. It doesn't really matter. And so those young men that are more emotional are being pushed more to a feminine side. But let me tell you something. God in human flesh, perfect man, was emotional, exceedingly sorrowful. He cried. I mean, kids today at such a young age, boys are taught today, you know, you got your your young little boy, he's riding his bike, and you want him to learn how to ride his bike, but he keeps falling off, and the last one he falls off, he skins his knee, blood's going down, and he's crying, and if you're not careful, Dad, you might come to him and say, hey, hey, hold on, son, big boys don't. Jesus did. He didn't just cry. He wept uncontrollably, grieving the loss of his friend Lazarus. You see, God has, a, God has made us individually and uniquely and given to us our, our physical identity at birth and our spiritual identity when we're born again. And it's okay for gals to cry. It's okay for guys to cry. It's okay for gals to be emotional. It's okay for guys to be emotional. Jesus here is deeply emotional. Deeply. And yet still fully a man. No question whatsoever. And he's looking to the cross. And he's concerned about the wrath of God that's about to come on. Don't misunderstand this prayer. Jesus is not afraid of death. 
And he's not afraid of facing death. He is looking to the cross and understanding that the wrath of God, his own wrath will be put upon him in order to forgive you and me of sin. He's somehow in the unity of the Trinity. We're not told. It's still mysterious. But in the unity of tri- in the Trinity, at that moment where the wrath of God is poured upon the Son, there's a separation of some sort, a distance that Jesus was willing to go through for you and me. And it's messing, you know, it's really pricking the emotions in his heart. And he's emotional sinlessly. Listen, when you're raising your kids and you're raising your grandkids, your cousins and such, give them the identities that the Lord has given them in his word. And be careful not to pick up on the nonsense of the world and try to craft and mold your kids into something that God never intended them. It's, it's going to become more and more and the identities that God has given to us are found in the word. And Jesus, he, he's facing the worst of the worst and yet he is praying. He is praying and he's emotional. Now, notice. Pick up with me in verse 39. He went a little farther And he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them asleep and said to Peter, What could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You might want to underline that, because it's true in your life and in mine. The spirit so often wants to soar with the Lord and do great things, but our flesh is so weak. But you control part of that, church. You control whether your spirit's going to be stronger or your flesh is going to be stronger. You control it by what you listen to. I control it by what I watch. I control it by how I feed my flesh or I feed my spirit. If you think 90 minutes in a church building is going to sustain you for the rest of the week, you're wrong. It's a great Man, we need to obey the Lord, and we need to come together and worship. And if this is all that you do, please don't stop. But I'm telling you, if this is all that you do, your week is pretty fleshly. And I don't even follow you or walk with you. I don't live with you. I'm not in your house. But if it's just a little Bible study that you're doing, and and it's good, it's better than nothing. But if this is all you're doing, I'm pretty confident. I'm pretty confident you're a fleshly person all week if you're not doing your devotions regularly if you're not praying without ceasing regularly, if you're not seeking out wisdom from God every day for the situations in life, if you're not sharing the gospel with people and telling them about the love of God, you're going to be a pretty fleshly person. And what I mean, what the Bible means by flesh being weak is that you're going to live just like you're not a believer, which is pretty sad. And I think we all go through seasons. I certainly do. I'm certain that if you caught me on certain days or at certain circumstances, you'd like, what, what, Ed? Ed, is that Pastor Ed? Is that Pastor Ed arguing with Marie? I'm trying to convince her I'm right, you know? Come on. But we argue in our marriage, and, you know, we go through stuff just like you do. Every, all of us do. There's no difference between us. And, and so what, the way that I'm going to learn how to love my wife more is by building up my spirit and not responding in the flesh. I mean, I can go with example after example, but this is true for all of us. And, and even physically, we need rest. God has given us the pattern, six days of work, one day of rest. We have to truly rest 
Because then we won't be tired. Notice verse 42. He went away again a second time and prayed, Oh, my father, if this cup can't pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away and prayed the third time, saying the same words. And he came back again, and they are still sleeping and resting. Behold, verse 45, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, he who betrays me is at hand. Jesus is praying. The disciples are sleeping. Why? Because their flesh is weak, their spirit's willing. And verse 43, I love how the Bible is just so simple. Why were they sleeping? Because they were tired. They were tired. And that's what you and I do when we're tired. We sleep. It's always wise not to pray on your back with your head on a pillow, eyes closed at 10 p.m. Because you're going to start out, oh, Father, I love you so much. And then you wake up in the morning and go, man, that was a great prayer. No, bro, you fell asleep, man. You said three things and you're dumb. Marie and I have often done that where one of us have fallen asleep in prayer. And then there's that little Christian squeeze when you're done, you know. You do that little squeeze and you're, whoa, whoa, what happened? I'm done. Oh, yeah. Well, I was praying in my sleep, man. I was dreaming. Dream praying. We get tired. We get tired of life. We get tired of circumstances. We get physically tired, emotionally tired, spiritually tired. And you can see, it's more than some rule and regulation to follow. Our life with Jesus Christ is a relationship. And relationships are built on communication, time, and testing. And the communication piece, the Bible calls prayer. And it's always good to pray with your eyes open. I I have tried to adopt, I'm not perfect in this, but I've tried to adopt praying on my knees because that is one of the most uncomfortable ways to pray. I mean, it's painful. You go down on your knees and then you're there and I got old knees and I got injuries and then my feet are all messed up and so I got to move and I got to keep moving and you keep awake (laughs) and you're kind of moving around instead of laying on your back, resting covers up on top of you and... You're toast if you do that. I'm just, you're toast. You've already had a long day. You're toast. It's over. But then when you're praying in the car and you're praying at work and you're praying uh, all day, all the time, just kind of flowing through your life, the Lord blesses that. And you become stronger. And you become wiser. And the Lord, he's praying and he's wrestling with the cup, the wrath of God. He's wrestling with the reality of what's going to happen. He's wrestling and he's submitting. See, Far from a prayer of fear, Jesus is praying a prayer of yielding. Not my will be done, but your will. If there's any other way, well, the Bible is clear. There is no other way that your sins can be forgiven except the perfect Savior die for your sins. There's no other way. And so I'm grateful that Jesus, as he's praying, he says, hey, if there's any other way, but never, not nevertheless, in the old King James, nevertheless, your will be done. That's, that's what it sounds like when we learn back in Matthew 6 to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. This is what it sounds like. Facing with something difficult and hard. This is submission. This is a prayer of submission. In John 17, he was requesting and interceding and praying for us, praying for disciples, praying for himself, praying for the future. Now he's praying himself into submission. Submission and yielding. And there are all those times when we need to bear our soul and pray ourselves into submission and yielding because we are not perfect like Jesus. He's the model for us because when we pray for yielding and submission, most likely it's because we've been rebelling. 
When Jesus prays for yielding and submission, it's part of his nature. It comes naturally without any sin whatsoever. It says in verse 47, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve with a great multitude of swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders. The betrayer had given them a sign. Now it's not his name anymore. It's not Judas. He's the betrayer. And saying, whoever I kiss, he's the one, seize him. And immediately he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. And notice Jesus' response, friend, why have you come? To the very end, friend, friend, why have you come? You know, back in verse 24, before we leave, we have a a beautiful example of both the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Go back with me to verse 24, just so you can see this, because there's such a debate about this in the body of Christ today. There's such an arguing over it, and it doesn't need to. The Bible teaches the sovereignty of God, and the Bible teaches the free will of man. You see it both in one verse right here. Notice, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. That's the sovereignty of God. It was predicted that Judas would be a betrayer. It was already prophesied. It's going to come to pass. Woe to that man, Jesus says, to whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not even been born. And Judas, in verse 25, said, Rabbi, is that I? And he said, you have said it. In, in this verse, you see the sovereignty of God. It was written ahead of time. From the point of view of heaven, we see the sovereignty of God, he, the providence of God, the power of God. Judas' wicked deed was predicted in the scriptures and a fully a part of the plan of God. And yet we also see the free will of Judas, that he makes up his own mind and he was personally guilty for his horrible crime and 100% responsible for his personal decision. And there's this tension continually in the scriptures between the sovereignty of God because he is sovereign and the providence of God because he does have a plan and the free will of man because we do have a free will choice And when Adam was in the garden, he made a deliberate free will choice to disobey God and paid the price for it and was held 100% responsible. And there's that tension because we go, well, how is that possible? I I don't understand it. How can God both be sovereign and yet man still have free choice? And you say, Ed, what's the answer? And I would say to you, I don't know. The Bible doesn't explain it to us. The Bible just shows us. He'll show us, God will show us on one page his glorious sovereignty. Then we'll turn the page and we'll see a free will decision of man. And then on another page, we'll see God holding us accountable for our decisions. But he never tries to explain, this is how it works. Now, when those that like to argue these things, this is the danger that happens. They will fall too far on one side. So on the sovereignty and providence side, people will now try to explain the tension away by a doctrine known as Calvinism. And so they become Calvinists because that just, then they'll just emphasize and overemphasize the sovereignty of God to the point where they won't give man any free will decision. It's all, everything is all God's fault. But sin is not God's fault. On the other side, the emphasis on free will of man is a system of doctrine by another man by the name of Arminius. His, his doctrine is Arminianism. And they emphasize, that doctrine can emphasize to an extreme, so much so that there's free will of man starts to diminish the sovereignty of God. And both extremes are not what we hold to. We hold to what the Bible says. And the Bible teaches the sovereignty of God, and the Bible teaches the free will of man, and never seeks to explain the gap between the two. Instead, God says, believe what my word says. You're responsible, and I'm sovereign. Trust me. 
and how careful we need to be from all sorts of extremes. But instead, let the Bible speak what it says. And here's Judas, because in verse 50, this is where I want to end. In verse 50, Jesus looks at Judas and says, friend. Now, Jesus knows what's going on, but he still extends to Judas this opportunity. He still calls him a friend. I think that this is an opportunity in real time for repentance. You go, wait a minute, Ed, I know Judas betrayed, but understand this. The only reason we know Judas betrayed Jesus, the only reason we know he's the prophesied one, the only reason we know that is because of reading the Bible in the past tense. The Bible records something that already happened. If you're living in the present tense with the Lord, and he extends his hand to you and says, friend, and invites you into relationship, he means it. And perhaps, again, we live in the realm of perhaps, if Judas would have repented, there would have been, we would have learned of another ordained person that was the betrayer. Now, of course, back at the table, we see it all unfold. There's the betrayer, and Jesus knows that. But perhaps verse 50 is an opportunity for repentance. And then Judas would make another mistake down the road. We don't know for sure, but I do know this. I do know this. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, after this prayer, After his burial and resurrection, he extends to you his hand and says, friend, you might be a deep betrayer of God today. You might be someone that wants nothing to do with God. You might be someone that's already decided, I'm not following God. I don't want my parents' faith. I don't want anything. And there you are. And God is here in this church and here by technology, extending his hand to you and saying, friend, why are you here? And I hope that you would answer that question. You'd say, you know, I know why, how I walked into that room. I know how I clicked on that video file. I know how I started, but now at the end, I'm here because I need to be made right. My life needs to be right with God. Jesus, when he's praying, he's praying for submission so that your sins might be forgiven and mine. He's praying, acknowledging that submission to the Father, saying, God, I'm, Father, I'm, I'm going to go. If this, it can be any other way, but since I know there's no other way, your will be done. I'm here to do your will. The more you pray, the more you do God's will. The more you pray, the more you do God's will. Jesus was a man of prayer, and the Bible says that he always did what pleases the Father. So as we pray, consider where you are before God right now. Consider where your life is. And if your life isn't right with God, today is the day to do it. Today is the day of salvation. God, we ask that you would just make this little survey come alive in our hearts. Make it come alive in our lives. Even the little message about discipling our kids, God, we need help. We want to raise our kids to love you and serve you, and they don't have to go the route that we went, uh, whatever route that might be. And we want to be made right with you, God. We want to walk in wisdom. We want to live for you. We want to submit ourselves to you. We want to find ourselves in a place of great joy and happiness as you lead us and guide us speak to us. We don't want to grieve you, Holy Spirit. We we don't want to quench you, Holy Spirit. We want to cooperate and follow you all the days of our lives. And if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, then today's the day. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in his heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what the Bible says. And now you kind of get it, like the price of salvation was pretty serious. It was no small thing to die on a Roman cross. And so today, if you're here, you say, Ed, I, I want to follow God with all of my life. I, wanna, I want to 
I want to deal with that thing you read earlier about my sin. I want my sin forgiven. If that's you today, you'd say, yes, Ed, that's me. Would you just stand to your feet? I want to pray with you. And, and we want to give you a chance to publicly acknowledge a desire to follow Jesus Christ. So if that's you, just stand up. I want to pray with you and, and encourage you. I know you guys on the radio live right now or on the internet, I can't see you, but God does. And so I God bless you in the back. Who else would say, that's me? Today is the day that God is doing a work in your life. It's not tomorrow because you're not promised tomorrow. It's today. And again, you see both sides. You see the sovereignty of God. Only he can make a life come alive. Only he can draw people to himself. But then also you see your response. You're receiving what God is giving, his gift. You're receiving. And so who else would say, that's me? Today's the day. We'll wait for you. Like, like this, is, this is the day that God has picked for you. And we're all just learning about it. This is the day that God has chosen for you. That you might give your life to him. Anyone here? Maybe downstairs, I don't see you, but man, I'll tell you, if in this room, if it's, just, if it's just for the one, God loves you. And so those of you that responded, here, pray with me, would you? You could say something like this to God. You could say, God, I ask you to forgive me of my sins, for they're many. And I believe you sent Jesus Christ to live for me, to die for me. And I believe Jesus rose again from the dead to forgive me of my sins. And I ask you, God, to help me to turn my life around and away from my sinful past and to submit myself to living for you. God, I know that anyone that would pray and talk to you in any way saying that they believe, you hear that prayer. You hear the prayer of the lost and the seeking the seeker. You hear the prayer of the wanderer, the prodigal. You hear the prayer of the parent, the grandparent. You hear the prayer of the child, the grandchild. And so we rest our lives on you today as we leave. What a great boost into our week to invest an hour and a half or so into our spiritual lives. But may it carry on. May we pray every day, God. May we read every day. May we share the gospel, Lord. May we tell people about the love that you have for them in their lives. May we engage our community with not just a church invitation, but an invitation to life and life everlasting. And we'll commit ourselves to you, Lord, one more day, anticipating one more week of a life that pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been touched by this study from Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call area code 303-628-7200. Be blessed this week in the Lord.